0: Now that we are done with the book of Revelation, I'm going to spend a few weeks leading up to and through Easter looking at uh, the power of the resurrection and as I was uh, there's so many wonderful topics that we can we can look at, and I thought, you know, we'll start with the very basic why did Jesus need to die? You know, it it is to me one of the most interesting things that when you read through the Gospels and you see the apostles' reaction to Jesus telling them that he was going to be arrested and that he was going to be crucified, even though he told them he was going to raise himself on the, be raised on the third day, uh, the whole thought of their Messiah was reigning in the kingdom with him, this whole idea of him being the sacrifice that he came to be was just completely foreign to them. They had believed in him as their Messiah. You see in the Gospel of John, that happens very early in John 2 after he calls them. John tells us that they believed in him. You see in Matthew 16... Well, into Jesus's ministry when Jesus says, "Who do you say that I am?" through Peter they proclaim him to be the Son of God. And yet the whole idea of him being a sacrifice is unknown to them. And so this week as we start this, we're going to get it farther into what the sacrifice means and and all of that, but just the very basic of, of why. What is it between God and man that required a perfect sacrifice? And as believers, we know that it's sin, but as I was studying these things and looking at them, I mean, how often do we really study sin and the world, and we, we know it, but the reason I think it's important, the reason that we know these things it, it lines up with 1 Peter 3 in that verse 15 that we're to sanctify ourselves in Christ and we are always to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us and if you can't give the very basic beginning of that which is the need for a savior and then the rest becomes hard to to explain to fathom. And I think that that need, as we're going to get to, is actually felt within all people. But being able to express it in a way that helps people to understand the longing and the need within them is important. So we're going to start at the very beginning in Genesis 2 and 3, and then we're going to look at passage in Romans 5 and a couple other things briefly. But pray before we begin heavenly Father we again thank you for this opportunity to be here together and to open your word God as we look at at sin and the things that we do that are in rebellion to you help us to be humbled help us to be humbled by your grace and your love and to to have an accurate view of who we are, and more importantly, of who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Genesis 3 is, is where we get, we will see Adam and Eve fall, but I want to start with chapter 2, because understanding how bad the fall is, is clearly understanding how perfect the creation was. So, Genesis 2 Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all of their hosts. And by the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from his work which he had done. God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth in heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth. And there was no man to cultivate the ground, but a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the middle in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, it flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good, and the, the Delum and the Onyx stone are there. And the name of the second river is Gishon, and it flows around the land of Cush. And The name of the third river is Tigris, and it flows east of Assyria. And the fourth is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to cultivate it and to keep it. Again, I mean, the picture here coming out of one where Moses has written down and explains how everything God has created. And we get this picture of this perfect, again, as we just looked at over the last couple of weeks of the, the new heaven and the new earth, that this earth at this time was in every way perfect. That it is newly created and perfect of God. And he forms Adam from the dust of the grounds is created in his image and God breathes life into him and he places him in this perfect garden. Everything that is being described is, I think it's even hard to, to understand perfection because we don't know it in anything. That we can describe something as perfect, but we've never experienced it. That it is without any blemish. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. And in retrospect, we may look back and think, how hard could that have been? You're in this perfect world, this perfect creation, with all kinds of trees that are pleasing to the eye. And God only gave you one and said, not that one. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept and then he took one of his ribs and closed up the place of the flesh in that place. And The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, the man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife are both naked and not ashamed. Interesting, we see all of these, these perfect things and God's original intent for creation. I think one of the, the ways that our sinful minds can twist things and, and not see perfection, we see there that God wanted to provide a helper for Adam. And we look at that word helper and we twist it in our own way and see, well, this is what a wife is. I I need help. I need... Interesting, the Hebrew word there for helper is most often used in the Old Testament for God in the way that he came alongside men. And that God was providing Adam with someone who was equal and suitable for him in carrying out the tasks that God had, not carrying out everything he told her to do. This is God's perfect creation. As he says repeatedly in chapter 1, that it was good. And if it is good in the eyes of God, it is beyond our understanding. Then we get to chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, God has, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? What a form of deception this is, is that, you know, you exaggerate the truth and, and whittle it down to the point of deception, ignoring God's goodness. God's provision, everything that God had done in creating this perfect environment for Adam and Eve. And the woman said to the the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. And we see already a disconnect here between God's original command to Adam and, and what Eve is saying, and that the deception is already beginning to work in her mind, and that deception goes clearly to who God is, and who He is is the one who had created her and Adam perfectly in the garden, perfectly and provided for them perfectly, and yet as she is being deceived. Already in her mind, it goes from you shall not eat of it till you shall not touch it or eat. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. And there's the hook. You will be like God. What did Satan want to be? God. His view of himself was so exalted that he saw him on equal footing or even greater than his creator and that he wanted to rule for himself. And now he shares this lie with her. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. It was desirable to make one wise, that that she didn't just want the fruit because it looked good to eat, but that she wanted to have her eyes open and to be like God. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more Than all the cattle, and more than every beast of the field, and on your belly you will go, and on the dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, in pain you will bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you, and toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread. Until you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Interesting there, and we get, after Adam and Eve make this choice, and again, we, we have to remember that in this perfect creation, so perfect we probably can't even grasp what it would have been like, that beyond that, that God came and walked with them in the garden and they had fellowship and a relationship with their creator as they were created to do, and that they were still deceived by the temptation of being like God. That in their hearts, that it was better to abandon that perfect relationship with God in hopes of becoming like him. And as we're going to get to, I think that's key in understanding our own hearts as we face temptation. And then because of sin and because of God's grace, he does not enforce this death penalty immediately. But he curses the earth. And as he has always done, he allows the consequences of sin to then rule their life. And the ultimate consequence of that sin is death it's interesting when you think about sin that both the, the Hebrew word for it kata and the, the Hebrew word hamartia have the idea of missing the mark but that the Greek word or the Hebrew word has a little bit stronger connotation in that, that it literally means, it, it means to intentionally miss the mark that always really struck home with me is, I, I was never a great shot I could hit a target, but I was no marksman. But it has more of the intention in in this writing with the bow and arrow. uh, You think of that missing the mark, that it isn't that I'm aiming and I'm trying as hard as I can to hit the bullseye. It's more like that, oh God, that's where you want me to to hit? Okay. (laughs) That's who we are. That we intentionally miss the mark. Why do we do that? I think it comes down to, you know, when Jesus is asked which commandment was the most important, and he says that the law comes down to loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That if I love God, I care more about what he says than what I do. I am willingly putting myself below him. That is a In true love, there is a humility because you can care more for someone else than you do yourself if you don't think too highly of yourself. And yet within each of our hearts is the desire to be our own God. And that is why we intentionally miss the mark. It is why as mankind from that moment on has lived in rebellion to God. And that's what sin is, that that we know what God wants and yet we choose for ourselves what we want. And God is like the parent that is telling his children, his child, don't touch the stove, it's hot, and watching the child go. <laughs> well, that's who we are. We are all guilty of sin and in need of a savior. So as we begin to look at a little bit more at this when we go to in Romans 5 we need to understand that that this is this is universal that when I understand what happened on the cross I understand that it happened because of the choices that I make but this isn't something we can just blame Adam and Eve for and move on and say well I'm a good person because I try my best that no that because God is just and he is holy and he cannot tolerate sin, the consequences that happen there in the garden have continued forever, that God had to curse the earth. He had to allow the consequences of their actions to take place. Now you think of, I think so often in my life, how you can make one bad decision and it can affect so many other things even my own decision-making. I told you before, I think one of the most brilliant things I've ever heard, it was in reference to a diet. You know, if you wake up in the morning and have a donut, that doesn't mean you should go have a burger after that and a pizza after that. And, and the guy said, you know, just if you get a flat tire while you're driving, you don't get out of the car with a knife and stab the other three. But <laughs> well, that's often what we do. And Why is that? I think it's, it all comes back to that moment when Adam and Eve chose sin and every single one of their offspring since has chosen sin. And so turn with me to Romans 5. We're gonna look at a section here in Romans where Paul, as he's beginning to talk about, it's interesting, he's come out of his discussion in the early part on justification and now he's really looking at the results of that justification, but he, he again deals with the sin issue and, and its effect on mankind. We're going to begin in verse 9. Oh, I'm sorry, we're going to begin in verse 12. Where Paul says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. The therefore, at the, the beginning here, is pointing back to, I believe, 9 through 11. So 9 through 11, he says, Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? And not only this, but we also, we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received, received the reconciliation. Again, as we're looking at the power of the resurrection of what Jesus Christ did on the cross and what it means that he came out of that grave, the sin that we're looking at today was dealt with in that moment. And this is something we're obviously going to delve into in far greater detail in the weeks to come. But that Paul is... Is pointing back to that here when he says that, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all Uh, sinned. I've heard this many times, heard this verse used to be what the basis for understanding imputed sin. I don't think that's the point that Paul's making here. Paul isn't saying that the only reason you're guilty is because Adam sinned. The point he's making here is what he says there at the end, because all sinned. One theologian I was reading, I like the way he put it, so I wanted to use his words, is that Paul isn't concerned about the mechanics of the sin. The big point is, the big picture is all have sinned, that we are all guilty. That we can't blame Adam for our sin or Eve, that yes, because of that moment, every every offspring of Adam and Eve that has ever lived has chosen sin, and that death has been a constant is what we're getting to, but that it is each one of us that is choosing to live in rebellion to God, that within our own hearts that we rebel. And that we are making that choice. And this is not something that is, can be blamed on someone else. That you see the source of it, but it is, it is each one of our choices, I think, is what I'm, I'm getting at. And that's the reality. Is that we all sin. That it started with Adam, but it's a choice that each and every single one of us make. And because of that, death spread to all men. Verse 13, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. So I think this is a an interesting point in understanding this, in understanding how we share with the unsaved world what sin is and why they are guilty of it. What does he mean when without the law, it wasn't imputed? We think of imputed as... A, put on you. I mean, so if you haven't heard the law, are you not guilty of it? I don't think that's what Paul is saying here at all. He's, the word there that in the NASB is translated as imputed is, I told you before, I find it really interesting when words are seldomly used. This word, elegoti is only in the New Testament twice. And so they have to go to other Greek writings from that time, from the Koine Greek, to understand the full meaning of the word. And this word is a, a word that was used commercially or in business as like an itemized list. It's sort of like uh, at the end of the month, you get a credit card statement and you get a list of all the charges that came that month. Where you've spent the money, how much was spent, And at the bottom of it, how much you owe. So what Paul is saying here is that during the time from Adam until Moses, when there was no law, because you can say Adam had, and he brings this out more soon, but Adam had one command. He knew specifically from God what was required of him. And that was to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, then he has two sons. Did God ever say, you shall not kill your brother? No. But was Cain guilty when he killed Abel? The answer is yes. So I think Paul is saying here is that while, while with the law, God can tell you exactly the laws that he has commanded of you that you have broken, that there is a greater understanding within each of us you could sort of call it the law of the conscience, that God has created within us this understanding, and with Adam and Eve having eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that we have this conscience within us that when we do bad things, that we know they're bad, and that we are rebelling against God in our hearts. That's why I think it is a great thing to discuss with someone who is not saved and does not want to follow the laws of God, well, where do we get our laws from? Where do we get the understanding that that stealing is bad? Or adultery is bad? Or murder is bad? I think it's because they are created within us. And even the things that we might view as lesser sins are still sins that separate us from God and within our hearts that we know that we are in rebellion to him. Uh, It's not a huge point, you don't need to turn there. Just in, the only other place that that word for imputed or itemized is used in the New Testament is Philemon, verse 18. Paul says, but if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. The word owes there is the same word as here. Paul is expecting that if wrongs have been done or charges are owed, that he will get a list of what those charges are. So that's what he's saying here, that, that God may not have a list of exactly the laws that you have broken. It doesn't matter that you have broken the laws that he has put within your heart and so all are guilty law or not he brings that back he brings that out earlier in romans you can turn with me back to romans 2 2 starting in verse 12 he says for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law for it is not the hearers of the law who are just before god but the doers of the law will be justified For when Gentiles do not have the law, who do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are now a law to themselves. In that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. It makes it clear there. The Jews were guilty of everything they broke within the law. Only those who do, could do the law perfectly be justified, which is none. But even the Gentiles who didn't have the law, that they were things in the law that they did, proving that God had put it within their conscience. And those things that they did do, and so in our society, everything that makes us be able to hold together as a society, society, are things that God has put within our heart of right and wrong. And yet we choose for ourselves which things we're going to hold on to and which things we don't. But the fact that we have that within us proves that we are all guilty. And I think this is, this is really important to be able to understand and know that it doesn't matter if you grew up in a Christian household and you rejected the gospel message your entire life, or you were born in Papua New Guinea in some remote tribe and could never read or write or heard about Jesus or anything to do with God, that you are still guilty because of who God created us to be and this this consciousness of his right and wrong. That whether you're Cain killing Abel or you're Someone in a remote area today, or you grew up hearing the gospel that each one of us is responsible to God for our sin; that we are all guilty, and we are all in need of a Savior. Continues in verse fifteen or fourteen. I'm sorry of Romans five. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offensive Adam, who was a type of him to come. Nevertheless, there's drawing this this strong contrast of, so even though there were those that don't have the law, it's pointing specifically there to the period from Adam to Moses, but it applies to all who are unaware of the law, as he brought out in Romans 2, that death reigned. Why did death have a stronghold on humanity? When death when something is reigning, it is ruling, it is in charge, and death has reigned ever since Adam. Why is that? Because we're all guilty. Remember when I was a year or so after I started at the funeral home, my closest friend from my childhood finished his college degree in accounting and uh, when i called him to congratulate him on graduating he, he told me he said yeah craig someday we're gonna have to start a business it could be a joint funeral home and accounting and we'll call it death and taxes <laughs> you know the two assurities in life but death reigned because we are all guilty And I think as we're looking to share the gospel with people and they understand that if they ask, why would God create a world where there is death? Well, he didn't. Or a world where there's suffering. He didn't. Or a world where people do terrible things to each other. He didn't. We chose that and we continue to choose that. And the proof is that we all die. That's why John 11 is my favorite funeral verse. Because you see in, John 11 35 when Jesus wept and in the verses prior to that you see the anguish in his heart and these strong words that are used to describe this turmoil that he is experiencing the reason for that isn't but just because his friend died he knew that in just a few minutes he was going to raise him from the dead the reason is that he is the God that. We see in John, we see in Colossians and in Hebrews that he was the one that, the person of the Godhead that was used for the creation of every single thing that was created and he made it perfect and then he is sitting there being faced with the ultimate reality of the sin that was introduced to his perfect creation. And as we experience that in our own lives, as we have this week in our church and probably will again soon, while we can face it with hope, we can face it with joy of where our loved ones are. We are still facing something that God never wanted for us, that God didn't create. And so when we understand sin, we need to understand its consequence. When Paul says in the next chapter, in 623, that the wages of sin is death, it rained because this is what we all earned. That every single person is guilty because we all know within us what is right. And what is wrong? The very end there of that verse, he says, again, those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, that is, those who sin without having command from God, that death had reigned over. But then he describes Adam as a type of him who was to come. He's, he's talking about Jesus Christ, and that Adam was a type or a model of, of Jesus, and what's interesting through the rest of this, the end of this chapter, he's going to point out numerous times the difference between Adam and Jesus, but what the similarity there? What he's getting at as being the same is that from Adam's offense, from him breaking God's law, that that it it was like it opened the floodgate for a new experience in mankind, and that is death. But through Jesus' death and resurrection, it opened another new experience of the ability to have life in him. And that is how Adam is... You may have heard that before, that, that, that Jesus is the second Adam. Well, Adam was created perfect, but he chose sin. Jesus was born perfect, and he lived a perfect life, and he gave that life for us, and he was resurrected and sin never got the better of him. Hebrews talks about, I mean, he experienced what we experienced, but he didn't sin. The way that they are the same, the way that Jesus can be described as a second Adam is that his sacrifice opened up a new door. In this series, I'm going to finish this, but today we're going to end this part here, Romans 5 and verse 15. Or Paul says, But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. It's interesting in looking at the difference of the two. I love how he brings out the grace of God and by the gift of the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ. And this look at the, the picture of of what God has provided for us and in his son, Jesus Christ, the gift that he has offered. Well, again, they are both flowing, both of the experiences flow forth from one man. They are, they are so entirely different. And while God is not the author of sin, James 1.13 says he can't sin, he can't even be tempted to sin. He cannot he can't be tempted. He didn't make Adam sin. This is something man has chosen. But this grace, what happened on Good Friday, what happened on Resurrection Sunday, what is offered to mankind as a gift from God out of grace, again, unmerited favor, can only be from God that it is something we are wholly undeserving of, and yet he is offering it to us as a gift. And he has to because sin in its corruption makes it impossible for us to have anything but death. The comparison Paul is making there is on the effect, not the source, that the effect of Adam's transgression was his and his alone. It has affected all of mankind. Jesus dying on the cross was solely from him and his grace, and it is open to mankind to choose life. We conclude. Turn with me to first Peter. When I think of of that sin of of the things that we choose of of our own guilt that has been made right by our faith in Jesus Christ, and that, that payment has been made, and that we have been declared just. 1 Peter 1, starting verse 18, Peter says, "'Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold "'from your futile way of the life inherited from your forefathers, "'but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, "'the blood of Christ.'" For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. And what a a beautiful way of of looking at it in our own lives as believers as we are are seeking to reach those who aren't saved, knowing that we needed to be redeemed or reconciled or brought back And because of the offense of our sin, the sin that caused death in the world, that gives death the stronghold that it has, it was the death of Jesus that brought us back. As we begin this this Easter season, and we have a few weeks to reflect on what Jesus Christ has done for us, I think we need to start in our own hearts and reflecting on what he has saved us from, that our experiences may be very different. I had the privilege in my life of having parents who loved the Lord and expressed his truth in my life from a very young age, and I got saved at a young age. That made me no less a sinner. There are some of you who may have gotten saved much later in life, and you you were no more a sinner than I was that these transgressions, these rebellions against God and his perfection alienate all of us and we are all in need of a savior. And so again, as we, we get ready to celebrate this, this is the hope that is within us that Peter tells us that we're always to be ready to give an answer for. Well, this is the very start of that answer. That even if people don't understand the emptiness and the pain Inside of them. You can show them where it comes from. It started right there in Genesis. And if they don't believe the creation story, and they don't believe the Bible, you say, well, it explains what's in your life. It explains what was in mine. What has been in every single person ever, and has ultimately been shown in the death of every person that has ever lived. So we reflect on these things and we praise God for his redeeming us. And We look forward to the day that he comes for us, but until then we live to glorify him for what he has done. And I think that's the point of what Paul's, or Peter's getting at there, that the reason we we know that we weren't redeemed with gold and silver but with the precious blood of Jesus is that That's what we focus on. If you were bought with something that didn't matter, it doesn't matter how you live. Peter brings out, we were bought with Jesus, and so live that way. And know what we were saved from. That is death's reign that we may face in this life, but we will not face it for eternity. Would you pray with me?